You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. When it comes to the book of Jude, if you go all the way to your Bible and hang a left, just about 22 chapters, you're going to find yourself in this little letter called Jude. It doesn't have multiple chapters, so when someone announces the book of Jude, normally whatever number follows the word Jude is just the verse that they are intending because there's not multiple chapters in it. It's a short little letter. And as we come to the scripture this morning, I want you to know that this letter captures exactly what we must contend with in this moment right now, over 2,000 years removed from the letter. You see, for us, as we come to the Scripture this morning, I I want you to know that as we come to the Scripture, we are about to embark on a sacred endeavor that is like nothing else. We read many things in our lives. There are many books that we encounter. There are textbooks. There are blogs. There are feeds in social media. There are comments. There are newspapers, if you still get a newspaper, And as we read these things, I want you to know as we come to the Scripture, the Scripture is different. When we come to the Scripture, these are the matters that matter most. When it comes to the Scripture, there are amazing things that happen when we open this book. This one-volume library with two major sections and 66 books that tell the one story of the rescue of man through Jesus Christ. And as we come to the Scripture, the Scripture is not primarily about us so that we might learn about who we are and what we're supposed to do. It's primarily about God who tells us who he is and who we are and what we're supposed to do. These are the very matters that Jude is writing this letter over. As we just sang in the song that uh, our worship team has been working on, it says, when lies begin to steal the truth that's been revealed. In our modern context, there are many assaults on this faith once for all delivered to the saints. And as Jason got us started uh, last week, some of you go, all right, let's contend for the faith. John, do we really have to contend? Doesn't that seem a little bit, you know, maybe too conservative, fundamental? I mean, is there really that much stuff to fight over? Can't we just all get along? Isn't love just enough? Can't we just, you know, let people go their own way and, and just know that since God is loving, in the end, all these things are going to pan out, and it really doesn't matter what you believe. We're all just on this spiritual journey where we're going to try to land in the same place and truth we don't need to argue over those things I mean come on there's all these denominations and there's all these interpretations and there's all of this confusion do we really need to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and Jude would say a resounding yes we do truth matters Doctrine matters. You see, when it comes to our world and where we live, there is an increasing number of what most people call the nuns. Not as in the Catholic sense of N-U-N-S, but the nuns as in N-O-N-E-S, the religiously unaffiliated. They're very spiritual, but they reject organized religion. 
and they believe that the truth claims of Scripture need a little bit of help. They need a little bit of modernization, and the context has to be fully understood, and maybe we need to redefine and reclassify and do a few things different with what the Bible has to say. There, as you go through it, many who would say, well, now listen, you know, the Bible was written by very sincere people who just, in their context, they didn't really understand it. And, you know, in their context, it was this, you know, there's a bunch of patriarchal understandings of the world and denies and subjugates women if you read Scripture. You know, there's so much slavery and the mistreatment of people in the Bible, and we have to do that. And while we may find things like that in the Scripture, I want you to know that Scripture tells a very honest story about the world. There are things in Scripture that are descriptive. They tell us what happened. They're not prescriptive, telling us that that's what we are to do. And when we read the scripture, sometimes we hear these arguments and we hear these things and we go, well, you know, I, I don't know. Does it really matter that much? And so Jude, think about this. A half-brother of Jesus writing with pastoral concern. He could see what's happening this is not just some thing that he thought, well, okay, I'm going to really stir it up today. I, I need something to go viral. I need to get some hits on the blog. I need some more followers. So I'm really going to stir up a little bit of argument in the church and really force a little bit of controversy. No, as with pastoral concern and care for people who are being misled, led astray by those who would say, when it comes to Christianity, just do whatever your heart leads you to do. Just be sincere in whatever way you want to. Let's not split hairs over doctrine and truth. You can kind of just have, you know, Christianity with no commitment, Christianity with no holiness, Christianity with no obligations or responsibility. It's just this warm, fuzzy feeling that we seek every once in a while so that we can feel okay about ourselves. And unfortunately, Jude would stand up and say, absolutely not. We must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I was, he even says, I was going to write to you about something else, but I couldn't. This is too important, so I couldn't send you a letter discussing something else. We've got to focus on this. So if you have your Bibles open to the book of Jude, uh, would you stand with me that we might honor the reading of God's word together? This morning, we're going to focus on verses 5 through 16, but I want to go all the way back to verse 1 and remind us of what we looked at last week. Jude, servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, why? Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. May God bless the reading of his word. Receive it as his living word. You may be seated. So do we really need to contend for the faith? Does it really matter what you believe as long as you are sincere in those beliefs? Is it okay just to be very spiritual but separated from organized religion? Can we just let things go? Isn't it too much trouble to stir things up? And does it really help anyone if we do? Scripture tells us. And the question before us this morning is not exactly what do you feel about the Scripture or what do you think about the Scripture. The question this morning is what do you believe that the Scripture actually is? If there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, if built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles, given in this word as men were led along by the Holy Spirit and they, as they were carried along, recorded the very words of God, if this truly is a living and active book, dynamic and sharp with authority, then this question is a very important question. You say, but okay, so... Is it really that big a thing? A few weeks ago, there was a a well-known pastor, author, speaker, who put something out on social media to describe what had taken place in his life. And on an Instagram post, he said this, my heart is full of gratitude, and I wish you could see all the messages people sent me after the announcement of my divorce. They're expressions of love, though they are saddened and even strongly disapprove of the decision. 
I'm learning that no group has the market cornered on grace. This week, I've received grace from Christians, atheists, evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, straight people, LGBTQ people, and everyone in between. Of course, there have also been strong words of rebuke from religious people. While not always pleasant, I know they're seeking to love me. There have also been spiteful, hateful comments that angered and hurt me. Later he writes, Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be of repentance. And there's beauty in that sentiment regardless of your view of God. I have lived in repentance for the past several years. Repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. But I specifically want to add to this list now, to the LGBTQ plus community, I want to say that I'm sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church. And for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. To my Christian friends, I'm grateful for your prayers. Don't take it personally if I don't immediately return calls. I can't join you in your mourning, and I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. I believe with my sister Julian that all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. Does it matter? Yes, it matters. Does it happen today? Yes, it happens today. These are matters of life and death, eternal station and condition of the souls of men are at stake. You see, when it comes to these places, have there been abuses? Certainly. Are there those who would presume upon God's grace? Yes. But for us, we must contend. Contend for the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. As we sang about these lies that try to steal the truth that's been revealed, can we know truth? And how do we know? If this series is supposed to be contend for the faith, and last week we talked about this is once for all, and this week we're talking about how to contend against false teachers, how do you know what's false? How do you know what's true? What are the things in Scripture that give us guidance? So I want you to see some things that we walk through. Now, granted, there's some very exciting things we're going to get into here, right? Angels fighting over the bones of Moses. Come on, that's fun, right? We're going to talk about gloomy and dark places and authority places and angels. And, oh, man, it's going to get exciting. So I, I want you to know, as Jude makes his case, the first thing he's trying to get to us is he wants to show us a pattern that is well established. You see, when it comes to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, there have always been troubles within. There have always been assaults on the truth. And the most dangerous ones come from within, not from without. There's a pattern that he wants to establish for us. And so as he goes to lay out this pattern, he says, I want to remind you of things. 
And he goes to the, to the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Now, I want you to know, as Jude writes this, he knows that most of the people that are there, his readers are going to be familiar with this story. For the Jewish people, this is that moment where God took this group of slaves and transformed them into a people and led them out by his power, establishing them as a community. God has always called a people into himself so that the world may know what he is like. And so he points and he says, you got to remember things. When he says, I want to remind you of these things, it's not like, okay, well, your brain just forgot. He's saying, I want you to dig in and I want you to understand these things. And I want you to fully appreciate what is going on. And it is Jude who actually says to us in verse 5 that it was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. What a great truth. You're reading in Exodus, and the people come up, and there's Pharaoh's army, and there's the people of God, and there's the Red Sea, and you're like, I heard this in Sunday school. I know what's about to happen. And it talks about standing still and watching the Lord fight for you. Well, I want you to know, God has a name. And the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, Jude tells us, is the one who split that sea wide open. He is the one from whom the plagues came about. He is the one by his power, by his right hand, that he took a people who were not a people and as a demonstration of his power, showing that with all those plagues, other gods are no gods at all. He delivered his people out of darkness and slavery. And Jude says, I want you to make sure that you don't miss the picture. This is not just a historical narrative to say, look what God did. He got people out. This is a bigger picture. I want you to remember because I want you to know Jesus led them out. And it's interesting that in Luke, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says, Jesus discussing with Moses and Elijah his departure. That word actually is Exodus. And what was going to be accomplished by his departure? The final enemy would be destroyed and death would be no more. So he says, I, I want you to get this pattern. And so the people of God led out. Christ has delivered them. They are brand new, just like the Christian life. You remember that exhilaration, that moment when reborn Seeing the world through new sanctified eyes in a way that God was raising and transforming you. The world looked different. All of these things looked different. But we, just like the people of Israel, doesn't take us long to have spiritual amnesia and to forget who we are and who God is. A fair amount of suffering or a choice that we don't like or an old habit or an old group of friends, how quickly... We forget. And so he says, I, I want you to see these patterns that are going on. I want you to understand this is not something new. This is something that is quite old. Rebellion against God is as old as creation itself. So I would commend to you this. Anytime you hear someone who assumes the name and office of elder pastor who says, I have something brand new from you, for you from the Lord, you should be very skeptical and all the alarms ought to be going off. Jude says, look, I want you to understand, there's a pattern here, and here's what happened. He, he saved people out of the land, 
But those who would not walk in faith, those who had a very emotional experience being freed from Egypt, seeing the future and dreaming about what it might be like, walking for a bit just out of the Red Sea when less than 72 hours they would say it'd be better to go back into slavery. Those who do not hold to that faith, those who do not truly believe, he says, they're destroyed. They didn't make it. You see, for some people, when it comes to this life in Christ, it's kind of like, you know, you have that Sunday morning where you're confronted with the reality of your sin. You feel desperately sorry and guilty about it. It seems like the whole world crashes in. You see people come and declare their desperate need for Jesus and the desire to follow him. And then six weeks later, it's hard to find them. And you, and you go and you reach out and you say, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Well, how's it going? God has delivered you from the penalty of sin and he's delivered you from its power. What does life look like for you right now? Well, I'm just doing the same things that I was doing before. I want you to know that when Christ transforms us, we become new creations. We have to bear fruit that keeps and accords with righteousness. And to the people that fully knew it, I love the way Jude puts it, you know, once fully knew it, and Jesus saved the people out of there, but afterwards, he destroyed those who, do not, who did not believe. And then he goes on, and this is where it gets really fun, right? Angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then he goes on, and then he says, and even Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, they serve as an example by, an undergoing, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You say, okay, so what was the problem with the Israelites? Well, they, the promises were not believed. The, the pattern is the promises are not believed. You see, when it comes to obeying Christ and following his law... He tells us, hey, this is the way that I've designed things, and this is built for human flourishing. It's for your benefit, for your protection. It's for your flourishing. And we say, well, God, I don't think you really quite understand my circumstances, and I'm a little bit different. I, I think that I ought to go ahead and just do this. I'm not sure that Scripture is exactly what it says it is, and I think maybe this would be okay. I don't really have to necessarily believe those promises. Or he goes to the angel and says their, their positions were not honored. We're told that at some point, these created beings that we call angels, that within their ranks, and we're told that there are various types and kinds and rank, there are archangels and cherubim and seraphim, and on all these angels, that in their ranks, there was one who instead of holding to the position that God had rightfully set him in, decided that he would be like the most high God, that he would ascend, that he would be the one who was master of his own life and destiny, that he would be the one who would call the shots. Leaving those positions of authority, not honoring those positions and taking care of those God-given responsibilities, it says that some are now even kept in gloomy places awaiting judgment. Think about in the Gospels, Jesus there in the Gerasenes, this demoniac 
coming to him. And it says, we're legion because we're many. And they want to know, have you come to destroy us? And they begged him not to destroy them, but to please release them into this herd of swine. Now, when it comes to this, there's a couple of things that I would commend to you. One, I, I want you to know we should not ascribe to our enemy a power or glory that he is not due. I want you to know that there is no real battle that has ever been in doubt between Satan and God. He is a created being that depends upon God for his very existence. And I would also note for you that in Revelation, when it comes time to bind the devil, Jesus doesn't even have to bother with it. He just sends another angel to bind him. Let us not ascribe to our enemy any power he is not due. When these, just like all rebels, rebelled against the high king of heaven and chose to abandon their positions of authority and their obligations, swift judgment and the display of God's power resulted. And somewhere in the realm that we can't exactly get our minds around, there's a gloomy darkness where they are awaiting in eternal chains for judgment. He moves on and he says, okay, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we know when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, our minds immediately go to the sexual perversion of those towns. And we think upon those things, but we must not be ignorant of what Scripture says. I want you to know, when it describes Sodom and Gomorrah, it talked about how beautiful it was. In Genesis 13, 10, it says that a lot lifted up his eyes. He saw the Jordan Valley. It was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We think about those things, but Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50 says they did not lead them to be grateful to their creator, for they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before God. In Ezekiel, it also says that this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. You see, when it comes to this understanding, we know that Sodom and Gomorrah sit as an example of God's judgment. And we really easily default to the perverted sexuality of those cities, but there was much more to it than just that. And these patterns of questioning God, of questioning sexuality, of questioning marriage, of questioning how we're to relate to one another. Oh, dear ones, I, I want you to know, when it comes to these matters, we must go by what the Scripture says, and we must hold fast and contend for the truth. When it comes to these matters, and, and we think upon these things, we must think God's thoughts after him. Rebellion always brings judgment and destruction. The angels in their apostasy lost heaven. These murmuring Israelites were shut out of Canaan. And these Sodomites, together with their fruitful land, were destroyed. This is the pattern. When it comes to these ideas, we should be very 
tender and compassionate as we discuss them, but we must not slide from the truth. Patterns. He goes on and he talks about people. He calls them dreamers. And when we hear about dreamers, we think, well, okay, well, that's interesting, but we need to know he lays out for us that they rely on their dreams. They reject purity. They reject authority. They reject God's law. When it comes to them walking this out, Jude says, I I want you to understand how this looks. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And then he gives us this story, this story from the assumption of Moses. Now, we don't have all of the assumption of Moses. We have bits and pieces of it. I commend it to you for your reading. It would be wildly entertaining. But when it comes to the assumption of Moses, he tells us something that happens. When Moses goes up to die on the mountain, Moses dies, and it says that God was going to bury him. And now we're told that somewhere in the process, Satan shows up to have a little discussion with the archangel Michael about what's going to be done with Moses' bones. And when it comes to this, he says that when they contend, notice the word contending, right? When they are contending together and disputing about the body of Moses, even Michael the archangel did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, a couple of things as we look at the Bible. Some of you might say, well, listen, what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, he's quoting from from a source that's not even in the Bible. So does that undermine the authority of God's word? How am I supposed to think about this? Here we got something from the assumption of Moses. We even got something from First Enoch coming up. What, What does that mean? Should this undercut my faith? Should this give me less confidence in the word? I want you to know a couple of things. One, there's nothing unusual about biblical writers Referring or quoting books that are not in your Bible. In Numbers 21, 14, it says, Therefore it is said in the book of wars. Now, I haven't read that one, but I look forward to it. It would probably make a great movie. That the records of Nathan, the prophet, and of Gad, the seer. I just think that's a great television show waiting to happen. Nathan and Gad, the adventures of Nathan and Gad, right? It's even said later on in 1 Chronicles that the acts of King David from first to last, they're written in the Chronicles of Samuel, the seer, and the Chronicles of Nathan, the prophet, and the Chronicles of Gad. So there's another one. And so as we read this, we go, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, you think about uh, Luke. In Luke, he said, I I want you to know that uh, some of the words of Jesus... He said that he did other things that are fulfilled here. In John 20, 30, and 31, John said, Jesus did many other signs which are not recorded in this book. Paul, quoting in Acts chapter 20, says, I want you to know, as you remember that our Lord said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Over and over and over, there are these quotes. Paul does it all the time. Jonas and Jambres. He even quotes Greek writers, right? Eratus, Menander. He even calls on a Cretan poet. Epimenides, that's entertaining. So when you're looking for names for kids, Epimenides might be a good one. And so when he talks about these things, I want you to see that when he uses a quote from something that is a familiar piece, it was just like if I was quoting something to you from a contemporary example. Or if I quote to you from John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. This doesn't undermine 
the authority of Scripture, and it should not reduce our faith. Oh, dear ones, I want you to know, if you believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, and certainly we believe that He has preserved it and kept it, and He's given us this faith once for all delivered to the saints, or else how could we contend? And what would we contend with? These patterns, these people. He, 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 he tells us, and I want you to know that when he quotes from these things, he's not going beyond even the teaching of the Old Testament Scripture in Zechariah 3. I'm sure you're all familiar with the fact that there in Zechariah 3, there's another story about Satan accusing and contending over things. When it comes to this idea of these examples and these texts, he doesn't add anything to the argument. He doesn't take anything away from Christ. He is merely saying, listen, there are patterns that have existed. It is written about in a lot of different places. And I want you to know about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So he talks about Michael and Moses. And the devil, this idea of Joshua, not the successor to Moses, but later this high priest who assisted Zerubbabel in an attempt to reform and build the temple, has those same things happening over and over and over. And then he goes through and he starts calling names. He says, listen, these people are like unreasoning animals. They just do what they think they should how they feel. But then he says, woe to them. Woe is not a word that we use all that often. But I would say this to you, as we think about Sodom and Gomorrah even, did you know, can you imagine what it was like when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum and he looks at his own family and friends and he says to them, it's going to be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it's going to be for you. Can you imagine that went off like a bomb in there. And so he, he's walking out these examples. And so he, he walks it through. And he says, they walked in the way of Cain. And they abandoned themselves. Cain knowingly offended God's laws. God came to Cain and he said, listen, sin is always crouching at your door. But you must master it. I don't know if it's like this for you. But sin is always crouching at my door. When it comes to this thing, he said, Cain, I need for you to understand. I, I, I don't want you to get hung up and whether your brother offered a lamb and you offered vegetables. I need for you to understand there is a way that I have decreed that things are to be done. And I want you to turn from doing it the wrong way. And I want you to see sin for what it is. And I want you to live and do well. And instead, Cain said, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. Jewish commentaries regard Cain as an example of an unbelieving cynicism. Then he talks about Balaam. Our favorite thing about Balaam is the fact that a donkey can talk. Insert pastoral joke here, right? That's our favorite thing about Balaam. And if you read the story of Balaam, it's wildly entertaining. A king tries to hire this prophet to curse Israel, and he goes from bad to worse. And instead of cursing this king's enemies... He ends up blessing them, but we usually don't read about what happens as the account unfolds. After these curses <laughs> turn into blessing, he goes back home, and we just assume, well, his work here is done. But over the next episode in Israel's story, 
It says that the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. And only later in Numbers 31 do we find out that in verse 16 they followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord and what happened at Peor so that a plague struck the Lord's people. He turns to Korah in a rebellion. And in this rebellion, they go against Moses and they say, listen, Moses, you, you just, you've gone too far. You're not better than us. And, and, and so we, we want you to know that we're not going to stand for this. And it, and it turns into an outright rebellion. And they gather and Moses falls on his face before the Lord. And he says, okay, let's let the Lord determine this because I want you to know I didn't seek this out. This wasn't my plan. I was a fugitive on the run who had been uh, keeping sheep for 40 years when the Lord told me that this is what he wanted me to do, this was not my plan. I didn't seek this office. And Korah and his group of insurrectionists wouldn't have any of it. So these 250 soldiers gather against Moses and they want to show this. That, hey, listen, we're not going to just listen to you. We're as good or as smart as you. Only to find out that in this rebellion, that God had set this order. And that they were destroyed in an instant. He goes on and he gives us these pictures. He calls them reefs. The idea of a reef being, you know, when, when ships were sailing, you couldn't necessarily see what the depth of the water was. You couldn't see how close the reef was to the hull of the ship. And so there was great danger. And so he says, I, I want you to know that when you come in and they are there, you have to be careful. You should avoid them, steer clear of them. These guys are just greedy shepherds who are feeding themselves. They're waterless clouds. They promise that they've got something, but it's unproductive and it's not filled with living water that gives life. They're not only that, but they're these fruitless trees that really have no value other than to be burned. They're these wild waves, and they crash in and make a big to-do, but really all that's left is what is stirred up in the filth that's left when they turn away. They're these wandering stars, and just like they used to fix navigation by stars, when those stars wander, people were being misled from the truth. But he says, don't be mistaken, there's a darkness that's reserved. And so he talks about something that we don't like to talk about. He talks about punishment. He, he, and, he, and he goes with talking about Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy one. Another thing that is outside of the canon of our scripture, but even in this, we can see a reference from Deuteronomy 33, that there were the angels involved in giving the law, that the angels were involved in coming in judgment, this punishment that comes, because that judgment is universal. Notice he says it's going to execute judgment on all. And it's by a standard. It's holiness. There's a punishment. Now I know that this isn't politically correct. But we have to contend for the faith. I want you to know when it comes to the story of the world. Man is not inherently good. Man is inherently evil. And you don't have to look too far to see sin's devastating effects. 
And some of you have been touched by those devastating effects. And I want you to know that God cannot lie. And he has to act in wrath towards sin. It's not some capricious, aimless losing of his temper, throwing a fit. This is a resolute action that he takes towards sin because he's God and he's holy and he has to. God said that in the day you sin, you will surely die. So if he doesn't act towards sin in wrath that leads to death, then he lied. And if he lied, he is not God. Judgment is universal, and judgment will be against God's holy standard. And you say, well, John, I, I, what am I supposed to do about that? I have the same thought, and I can tell you what the answer is. The remedy for sin is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we escape a judgment when I know how many times I've failed? When I've gone the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah. How am I supposed to find salvation when I have been Sodom and Gomorrah, like the angels who wouldn't stay in their proper place, like the people of God who forgot? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to flee this kind of executing judgment that's coming? I want you to know that God, instead of leaving us dead in trespasses and sins and mercy, gave Jesus Christ. And that by his perfect life, satisfying every righteous demand of the law, he gave his life so that we might be reconciled to God and atonement might be made for our sin. And he gives us his righteousness, perfect, pristine, stainless righteousness. And he gives us his life so that we might have eternal life. So when it comes to contending for the faith, the practice of these false prophets, he says, looks like this. You want to know what it's like? Grumblers, guilty. Malcontents, guilty. Boasters, guilty. Manipulative, guilty. All of these things over and over and over. But there's something different about this. This is not just an aimless thing. This is somebody saying, I want you to know there's a different way to be reconciled to God. You can be spiritual without Christ and still be okay for eternity. You can be so jaded by organized religion that around the table with five friends with no Bible and no Jesus, you can be reconciled to God without even acknowledging Christ as your Savior or living according to his ways. Or those who would write books that would say, here's how you need to understand the Bible. Guys tried the best they could, but they were evil and they were just seeking a greater way. And now in our enlightenment, we can help you understand that way. Or we can contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And contend against false teachers. Say, okay, well, how do I do that? Four things. One, abiding in his word daily. Abide in his word daily. You want to know how you will know the truth? In John 8, 31 and 32, memory verses, for those of you going through the abide study, right? And he said to the Jews who believed in them, you, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you, preach, free, right? How do you, how do you contend? You abide in his word daily. Number two, take sin seriously. God does. 
Take sin seriously. In our sin, we cannot be settled. We cannot be willfully defiant. In our sin, we can recognize our weakness and plead upon his mercy, but let us not be content to stay there. As prodigals, let us always be getting out of the mud. Take sin seriously. Number three, pay close attention to things taught as, quote, Christian. The Bible is the standard for truth, not our feelings. The Bible has to be our standard for truth, not our feelings. And be careful if somebody just gives you one verse that they pulled out of somewhere. Take Scripture in large chunks and see what the whole of Scripture has to say. And number four, just remember we will all face judgment. And it's a sobering reality. But don't stay there. Because we have one who has rescued us. We have the deliverer, so do not forget, remind yourself that Jesus Christ delivered us from sin. He delivered us from sin's penalty, from its power. One day he will free us from its presence. Do not just think because of these other things that you must hang your hands and think that we are without hope. I want you to know, yes, we should contend for the truth. Yes, there are things we have to think carefully about, but I also want you to know we have a God who is merciful and kind and good, and he rescues half-brothers who didn't even believe that their brother was the Messiah at one point in their lives. He rescues terrorists. He rescues those who struggle and sin and recognize their struggle. Look to Jesus. Contend for the faith. He will save. You're listening to audio from the Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com.